This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page and on Twitter at Burn555555. Today, I am interviewing Patty Callahan about Surviving Savannah. Patty is a New York Times bestselling author of both novels and short stories. She is the recipient of the Harper Lee Award for Distinguished Writer of the Year, the Alabama Literary Association Fiction Award, and the Christie Award for the Book of the Year. Patty Callahan Henry is also the co creator and co host of the weekly web show and podcast Friends in Fiction. Patty has a graduate degree in pediatric nursing and is now a full time writer living in both Mountain Brook, Alabama, and Bluffton, South Carolina. Surviving Savannah is one of my She Reads Most Anticipated Historical Fiction of 2021 books. And I also selected it for my March Buzz Reads picks. It's a fantastic book. I loved speaking with Patty, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Patty. How are you today? Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here. And I absolutely love Surviving Savannah. I stayed up to like four in the morning to finish it. It is just outstanding. Is it okay that I say how happy I am that I made you lose sleep? I feel like I've lost sleep for so many more negative things lately that it's nice to lose sleep for a positive thing like reading a really good book. Oh, thank you. I was hoping that with something so dramatic that you wouldn't be able to put it down. So thank you for proving me right. It's just so gripping. I mean, you just want to know, like, keep going. And then you did what is like my absolute favorite thing with historical fiction. You have a fabulous author's note where you kind of talk through what really happened and who the characters were and, and your research, which I can't wait to talk about, and then the few changes that you made. And I just love that because I think it's very helpful to understand what really happened, or at least the basic story, and then, you know, where you used your license as an author to make some small changes. Yes, there's... One of the things I was asked the most when Becoming Mrs. Lewis came out was, what's real, what's not? What's real, what's not? And I thought, I'm going to head that off at the pass for Surviving Savannah. I'm going to tell you what, and I don't call it what's real and what's not, but what's factual and what's imagined. So thank you for noticing because it was important to me that that we put that at the back end. So all those questions people have about what did you make up and what is actually factual, I, I go ahead and answer for you. And I liked that you said that, the factual and the imagined. I thought that was a great way to frame it. Yes. And, and, and I also say factual and imagined or factual and inspired. Because sometimes when you're writing these stories about very real people and very real things... You do get inspired after reading, especially journals or letters, about what they must have felt. There's always this factual truth, which is the bones of the story. And then there's always this emotional truth that's much more, for me, the drive of the story. And that feels inspired in many ways instead of just made up or not true. I like that. And that's a great way to look at it because sometimes those things also really power the story and it's details you couldn't really know unless somebody was writing down every little thing they did. And even though people wrote a lot more than what they were doing, we still don't have every single time that there was a conversation or a thought. So you do have to fill some of that in. But inspired is a great way to do it because you have a sense from what they wrote elsewhere or what other people wrote, things like that to be able to fill in some details. Yes. And, and with this 
so much was lost at the bottom of the sea when the ship went down that we lost a lot of personal things that would have told us a bigger story. And we had to rely on the journals afterward of the survivors. But what about the people who didn't survive? The experience it was for them. We've lost all of that. And the letters we they wrote back then that we don't write now, we we lose a lot now that they that we can read from the 1800s if we're willing to dig through the boxes. One of the things I learned during the writing of this novel, I keep saying is you can't find everything you need on Google. You've got to dig through the boxes and the museums and the old papers and the letters and the journals. It's not all right in front of you. One of the things I really want to talk with you about is your research regarding the steamship Pulaski because you had such a bird's eye view. You started researching and then they happened to find the remains. I mean, what are the odds? That was such a tip from the universe. It was very much keep going because when I first started writing about the ship, I wasn't positive that I wanted to keep writing about it. As I began, I realized what an in-depth endeavor I was taking on, that this wouldn't be a quick, not that any novel is quick or easy, but this definitely didn't even come close to quick or easy. I knew I would be dedicating two or three years of my life, and I wasn't exactly committed yet. And then it was early in the morning, and I was doing some research on my computer, and a headline popped up that said, Pulaski found by Endurance Exploration Group. And I just had head-to-toe chills. I felt like it was saying it wanted to be told. It was this little prod that said, keep going. I want this story wants to be told. And a couple other things like that happened. And so, yes, the the research was was intense and enjoyable. I actually love research. So it wasn't a burden in any way. But I really enjoyed the research. And one of the things I discovered and I knew and forgot and was driven home to me again and again was the gem that we have in museums. Because this book could not exist in the form it exists without the museums. They are our visual storytellers. They are where artifacts and displays and things from the past are visually there for us to see. So between the Georgia Historical Center, where I found the old papers and letters and journals, and the Ships of the Sea Maritime Museum, where the ship model is, so I could visually, because 1838, you don't have photography yet. It doesn't come for another 30 years or so. So I don't, it's very hard to get a visual of this ship. And they have a to-scale model at the Ships of the Sea Maritime Museum. Plus, they had articles and chapters of other books of steamship disasters that I hadn't been able to find. And then there is a museum in Savannah called the Thomas Owens House and Slave Quarters. And what they had done was take what originally looked like just a carriage house and completely revert it to an early 1800s slave quarters. And 
I was able to visually, instead of just reading about what that was like. And between those three places, the time period and the year and the people came alive for me so that they could hopefully come alive for you. And just figuring out what happened that night, the timeline, it's not a mystery. The ship blew up off the coast of North Carolina, but where did it blow up? Why did it blow up? What was the timeline? How long did people float at sea? How long did it take the lifeboats? Only two lifeboats on this ship were seaworthy. How long did it take them to get to shore? Those things were scattered in different books and different articles and different newspaper articles, different journal entries. It hadn't, as far as I could tell, been all put together in one narrative form. So piecing it together like a puzzle was fun and also intense. And wanting to make sure you got it right since you were the first one to do it. Yes. And one of the things that hadn't been done, and I kept putting off doing it because honestly, it didn't matter for the story, for the novel. But one of the things that had not been done was a full manifest of the ship. Now, I follow one family and we meet the captain and the first mate and we meet some people on the lifeboats that are very real people. The family I write about was inspired by a real family, but I changed their name. But I didn't need a full manifest of the ship to write this book, but I became obsessed with having a full manifest of the ship with a list of everybody I could gather, where they boarded and whether they lived or perished and how. And so I did do it. And it took me three years, but now I, we have as full a manifest as we can get, though we don't always have children's names or the enslaved names, but on the whole, we have finally have a manifest of, of that night. And I love that you did that. And it's included at the end of the book, right? Yes. Yes. And I honor them by doing that. I agree. I thought that was wonderful to be able to just read about each person. And it does. It honors that soul, especially those that didn't survive. I had never heard of any of this. And then the lifeboat thing was what truly kind of made me appalled because you always think about the Titanic and the issue being that they didn't have enough lifeboats. And I'm thinking this was so many years before and it was the same issue. Like, how did no one learn in all of those intervening decades? It is fascinating and appalling, isn't it? One of the nicknames this ship has, probably because of that, is the Southern Titanic. And the idea that again and again, these ships go down without enough life rafts is, 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 is baffling. And there were four lifeboats on the ship, which was nowhere near enough for as the almost 200 passengers. And yet of, of the four, only two were seaworthy. The other two people climbed in, they were lowered into the sea, and they sank immediately. Can you just imagine, you think you've gotten off of the boat and you're okay, and then you're like, wait a minute, I'm now heading into the water. Again. So one of the characters we follow, Augusta Longstreet, her, her real name is Rebecca Lamar, and she that's exactly what happened to her. She got in the lifeboat, it's called a quarter boat. It went in the water. She was with her sister-in-law and her six nieces and nephews, and the boat sank. 
and they were all tumped in and the boat was cracked. She made it back to the ship again, which was sinking, but had not yet sunk. So the idea that you have found salvation and you're there with your whole family and then it goes down again is unimaginable. And yet that's what happened. I agree. I think it's just hard to fathom. You're thinking, I thought I was okay, and now here here I go again. And the other part of your research that I understand happened is that you got to sit in when they found some of these artifacts that they brought up from the sea, that you were able to see these items and kind of look through them and over that. That's correct, right? I wasn't able to do it in person, but the minute I found out that they found this ship, I was relentless in tracking down the shipwreck hunter. His name is Micah Eldred, and he is the CEO of the company that that discovered the ship and found it and was looking for it because it had so much gold in it. And they are still bringing things up today. But I worked with him the entire time I was writing the novel, and he would send me pictures of what they were bringing up that day and that afternoon and show them to me. And then COVID hit when I was headed to Wilmington. So I never saw them in person, but a bag of treasure is headed my way because I am going to be showing it on pub day at my virtual event from the ships of the sea museum and we'll record it, but it'll be the first time some of these treasures and artifacts will be displayed. And there was meant to be a huge grand opening of the artifacts and treasure and gold and silver and jewelry and China and personal artifacts put on display this March. But because of COVID, the museum had to put it off until next March. But eventually all of these things will be in a museum display and curation in Savannah. I've never been to Savannah and I've always wanted to. So now I know that will add that to my list post-COVID so I can see all of these artifacts because that was another thing I loved about your book that you incorporated some of those like the monogram on the silver and the pocket watch that stopped right when the ship sank and just some of those really cool facts that actually occurred you incorporated into your story. One of my favorites, and it's so awful, it, it feels weird to say favorite, but About halfway through writing the book, I was telling the point of view of, like I just said, a woman whose real name was Rebecca Lamar. And in the novel, her name is Augusta Longstreet. And one of the things they found was her luggage tag. It is about a three inch or four inch by three inch brass plate that was probably attached to her satchel or her trunk. Who knows, but it's a luggage tag. It's a, it's a name plate that was on her personal effects. And they found that at the bottom of the ocean. And it is the only name plate they have found. And it is the woman I was writing from her point of view. You just cannot make that happen. You really can't. I say this over and over again when I'm interviewing authors, but if you put that into a fictional story where it wasn't based on real life, people would be like, oh, that is so much of a coincidence. There's no way that would really happen. But it actually does really happen. I think that's so cool. It is, which even more makes me think it was a story that wanted to be told. It sounds odd to talk about story like it has will and agency. And yet sometimes it just feels like it does. 
I hear that from historical fiction authors all the time. It comes out in different ways, a dream or a little bit like you said, you saw the marker down at the water or whatever. And other people said the same thing. They were on a tour of something and they read a marker and then that story just wouldn't leave them alone. And I just think that's so cool. I've just never had anything like that happen. But I just love that. The idea that this story sort of says, I I need to be told. And then you know you're in for a pile of work. The other thing that I loved was the way you did the museum tour, because we've done a Titanic tour that way, where you come in and you take a person's identity and then you make your way through the entire exhibit. And that's that's so fun. It just brings it to life. I was totally inspired by the Titanic museum display because I went through that display and did that where you have your ticket and find out what class you were, what birth you were in and whether you lived or died. And I just felt like that brought the story so much to life for me. And that was the traveling Titanic exhibit. But I was in Ireland about two years ago and I went to the real Titanic exhibit, the one in Belfast where the ship was built. They don't do that there, but the exhibit there inspired much of what you see in the exhibit in the novel. They just did such an extraordinary job of you walk in and it feels like Belfast in the year the ship was built. Of course, the Titanic was much later and there are photographs, but there were photographs of the people who boarded the ship. And they brought it to life in such a way that I wanted my character to do the same thing for the Pulaski. And I wanted the reader as we near the conclusion, and it's not a spoiler because you don't know what happened to anybody, but I wanted it to come alive in that the past and the present merge together in these museum exhibits. And these exhibits show us in tangible form the past as the flotsam literally of the past rises up. So yes, I was inspired by the Titanic exhibit to do the same thing. I figured you might have been just because I had done that exhibit a couple times and it was similar. But I have three teenagers and they just thought that was the coolest thing ever when we did the Titanic exhibit because it really does pull you right into the story versus just standing there and looking at one thing after another. Instead, you're sort of drawn into the entire story. Absolutely. And for a long while, I had my ticket on my bulletin board. So I can't find it now. I've That was a long time ago and I've moved since then. So I'm sure been lost and I'll find it the next time I move. But I kept my ticket for a long while on my bulletin board. So that's funny. What did I know that 15 years later, I would I would write something inspired by that ticket? <laughs> that is kind of cool. And now you're like, I've got to find that ticket. What do you hope your readers take away from this book? Well, first, I hope they are transported by it. And that like you, if it means staying up all night, it means staying up all night. But I never like to tell my reader what to take away. And yet certain themes rose up and emerged in this story that I hadn't seen coming. And one of the biggest is, or one of the more overarching themes that I didn't realize would rise up and ended up being sort of the umbrella for this novel is this idea of how do we survive the surviving? That it's not just about living through something and who knew how prescient that would be for 2021. Not just that we get 
through it, right? We've got to get through 20 and 2021. We've got to get to the other side. And yet, are we going to just survive it? Or are we going to somehow find a way to thrive through it? It's been horrible for some of us in different ways. We've lost people. It's been hard. It's been, we've had to reorient the way we live our lives. And it's way less than survival, but even not doing this and not being on the road for book tour, how do we reorient our lives and how do we accept that we haven't seen some people we love for over a year now? And the themes are the same in this book. Do we just live through it and then get on with things? Or do we find a way to thrive through it and new ways to live our life and find meaning out of it? And I hope that that my readers do take that away and then whatever else they want. Which raises another thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about. You say in your acknowledgments, or really I think it's the author's note, one would think surviving such a disaster would lead someone to want to do good in the world, not cause pain. And you're talking about Charles Lamar, who became the Red Devil. And it's such an interesting idea to think you do survive something like this and you, you want to thrive. And instead, he sort of becomes this notoriously horrid person. And you sort of think, how do you come through something like that and come out on the other side and then end up being this awful person? And that was the impetus for the overarching theme of the novel. When I started my research, it took a bit to find the door into the story. I think we talk about that a lot in historical fiction because history is interesting, but what's interesting are are the people that the history affects. Otherwise, it's just something we learned in high school, the Pulaski went down. And so as I was trying to find the door into this story, and I discovered the story about Charles Lamar in my book, he is Charles Longstreet, but he was a very real person. And this is not a spoiler either. You learn in the first chapter or two. He was a 14-year-old boy traveling with his family and he survived five days and five nights at sea on a floating piece of wreckage. No food, no water. It rained one night. And he earned a nickname during that ordeal. And he earned the nickname, The Noble Boy. And then 20 years later, he had a new nickname, which was The Red Devil. Because he had turned into this horrible man who turned into a slave trader. He was always in fights. He he was a cheater in business. He was not the noble boy anymore. And it brought into question for me this idea that we talk about all the time, which is this kind of meant to be, that if you survived, it was meant to be. And if the others died, that it was meant to be. And fate and destiny and those bigger questions of our lives that I leave to theologians and philosophers. But it was still interesting to try and unfold in a story. What did it mean that this boy survived to cause so much harm in the world, where some of the people who didn't might have done good in the world? And I didn't want to answer it, but I did want us to look closely at our collective ideas about fate, destiny, and meant to be. Yes, because it's a little difficult to think, well, he was meant to survive so that he could be this brutal slave owner who treated everybody so poorly and was known for just the way he behaved and how awful he was. It's sort of hard to think, okay, that was meant to be. Oh, it's it's really hard. And 
And when you're trying to make meaning out of tragedy, when you're trying to understand why something so awful has happened, somebody like Charles Lamar throws a wrench in the in the philosophizing, right? For sure. For a happier topic, I have seen so much chatter about your cover and how fantastic it is. And from the second I saw it, which was a while ago, I mean, the the cover reveal was a good while ago. I just think it's stunning. And I continue to see people comment on that. So how did your cover come about? Oh, I'm so glad you like it. Covers are so hard. Everybody has a different idea of what should represent the story. You have the artist, you have the editor, you have PR, you have sales, and then you have the author. And they want to honor the author and I want to honor sales and and PR and the artist. And, and yet I feel like this cover really welcomes you into the story. Here is this woman standing at the bow of a ship ready for this grand adventure. And yet we have the hint in the cover, in the foreground, what could be a sunrise, but could also be an explosion. What what is she headed into? And when I first saw the cover, I loved it. And I asked for a couple very small changes and they incorporated them in the most beautiful way. One was I wanted to have some movement in her dress and her skirt as if the ship was leaving. And the other was to really amp up that yellow in the background or foreground that she's headed towards and let the blue of the sky and the sea really show off what she's headed towards. So thank you for noticing. I'm always very invested in my covers and I love this one. It's very striking. And thank you for your compliments. I'm glad other people have noticed. Oh, I've seen a lot of chatter about it. Well, covers are sort of my thing. Like I always talk about them. I always ask about them because I think they're so important. I mean, obviously the book itself is by far the most important thing. But a lot of times, if you don't have a good cover, the book's not going to be picked up. It's the beginning of the book. People are either going to look at it and think, I really want to read that, or they're going to keep on going. And so I just think it's really important that you have a cover that is striking, but also a cover that represents your story, because it's really frustrating to me when I finish a book and I'm like, what the heck is going on with this cover compared to the story? Oh, absolutely. And and I want the cover to make you curious enough to pick it up without giving too much away. But if I pick up a cover like mine and I find Thriller, I'm going to be like, what the heck? <laughs> a cover. And it's so funny you say that this past week in Parade Magazine, Surviving Savannah was in there, but it was in there for this article about judging a book by its cover. And it had my cover and a thriller cover and a, a very literary books cover and talked about how these covers not only are beautiful, but tell you in many ways what kind of book it is. I saw Kathleen's post when she had posted it. We were talking about judging a book by its cover, and she knows that I'm always all about that anyway. But I need to actually read the article. I just saw that the different genres were represented and that that's what they were talking about, but I haven't tracked down the article to read it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's exactly what we're talking about. Exactly. And I think that goes to show that I I do think people, that's their very first entree into a book. And so you want it to be something that they want to pick up. Well, tell me a little bit about Friends in Fiction real quick before we wrap up. Oh, I could talk about that forever. <laughs> so Friends in Fiction started because five of us 
author pals, had our book tours canceled last March. It was me, Mary Kay Andrews, Mary Alice Monroe, Kristen Harmel, and Christy Woodson Harvey. And we got together with Christina McMorris on a cocktail Zoom just to lament about our book tours being canceled. And it's easy and hard to remember how nervous we all were last March. We had no idea what this COVID thing was. All we knew is that everything was shutting down and our book tours were falling like dominoes and we didn't even think we could see each other. And this was our lifeline and we did it a couple times and it was Mary Kay Andrews who said, I bet people would love to hear what we're talking about because we're talking about what they're worried about. We're all trying to figure this out. And so we put it on Facebook Live on Mary Kay Andrews' page, and we had such interesting discussions. And then it kept growing and growing and growing. And now it is, we have a community on Facebook called Friends in Fiction. It is a page on Facebook. We have I think we're coming up on 33,000 members. It also has an official book club that reads books and, and that's kind of an offshoot of Friends and Fiction. We are every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Sometimes it is just the five of us, but most of the time we have guests on. And everyone from Kristen Hanna to Delia Owens, we have Chris Bajalian coming up. We have had the most fascinating discussions And also, mostly just so much fun. And it has built this book reading community at a time when one of the things we need the most is community. We have been so separated and so alone and so isolated. And people have formed book clubs and friendships and found out they live in the same town or live nearby or... Somebody was telling me yesterday that she made a comment during the live show and somebody else commented back, did you go to such and such high school? And they reunited as high school friends now 40 years later on our Facebook live feed. No way. Yes. Those stories repeat over and over. It has been amazing. It is live on YouTube. We have an Instagram. We have a podcast where we're now interviewing other authors who aren't on the show. It's been, thank you for asking about it. It's been really special. It's been very organic. Well, Christy's a friend of mine, so she had added me very early on. I hop on Wednesdays when I can, and I comment on the reading when I can. But when I interviewed Kristen Harmel in maybe September, even then, I had I had no idea that the growth had been so big. And then again, now to hear, I mean, that's just amazing. And I actually get people all the time telling me, I found your podcast through somebody on Friends and Fiction. Yeah, it's all blending together, like this incredible book-loving community. I always say that if if friendship's on a scale of one to 10 and you find someone who cares as much about books and stories as you do, you're at an eight already. So everybody's friends. Everybody loves talking about books. And yes, they disagree sometimes. And we've had to delete a couple comments, but it's been, it's been an amazing organic. That's a great word. That's a great word. That's what it's been. 
It definitely has. And I also think with respect of people getting upset or deleting comments, I think COVID has been so difficult for people and there's nowhere to really voice your frustration. You know, you can't voice your frustration at a pandemic. It's not a physical thing. And so I just think that's leaking out into all sorts of different venues. And so I do think people are more upset now because they don't have a way to, to vent it. And it just ends up showing up different places like that. And later people are thinking, oh, I wish I hadn't gotten so upset about that. Right. And it's so much easier to send something mean when it's you're behind a screen. And you don't know them necessarily. I agree. I do love it. And so I was happy to talk about it because I think it's a great group. And you all have done so much wonderful, like you said, community building and all these great authors and just helping everybody out and you picking a bookstore because I know Murder by the Book was picked one time. Directing when you, depending on the author, helps a bookstore out. I just think it's all fabulous. No, we're all in this together. You too. Podcasts, shows, interviews. You know, if we can't be out there together, this is this is what we have. And it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular. Well, on that note, I would love to hear what you would recommend in the way of reading. Wow. So I always recommend all of my friends and fiction pals. Right after me is Christy Woodson Harvey with Under the Southern Sky. And after her is Mary Kay Andrews with The Newcomer. And then after her in May is Mary Alice Monroe with The Summer of Lost and Found. And then Kristen Harmel in July with The Forest of Vanishing Stars. So those are always a given because they're incredible. And I get early copies and I'm the luckiest. And the other book is Paula McLean's When the Stars Go Dark. Well, that's good to hear that you really liked it. I haven't read it yet. I have it from NetGalley and I can't wait to get to it because I really like her. So I'm happy to hear that you enjoyed it because it's a, a genre switch for her. Oh, it's a total departure for your listeners who don't know. Paula McLean wrote The Paris Wife and Circling the Sun and Love and Ruin, all about very real women from Hemingway's Wives to Beryl Markham. And this is a thriller. It's about a missing child, a missing teenager. And it's set in the 70s in California, in Mendocino. And it is, Paula is originally a poet. And so her writing is breathtaking. And the story is immersive and propulsive and all the things you want from a story like this. So yes, it is a total genre switch for her, but it is still a Paula McLean book. It's beautiful. Well, good. It's up soon for me, and I hope to interview her. We've tentatively scheduled it, so I hope to get to speak with her about it. So I look forward to reading it. And I just can't thank you enough, Patty. I know you're so busy with all of your book coming out and Friends in Fiction. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I love speaking with you. Oh, anytime. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. With the book just coming out, it's so fun to be able to talk about it. I'm still like, oh, let me tell you about my book. So thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Patty's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book where I work part-time or on the Conversations from a Page bookshop store. The link for both Murder by the Book and Bookshop is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. 
On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!